and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Jennifer Murphy Romick, Professor of Practice at Emory University School of Law, and Mark Edwin Burge, Professor of Law and Director of San Antonio Programs at Texas A&M University School of Law. We will discuss their work on legal education outside JD and LLM programs, including their new book, Legal Literacy and Communication Skills, Working with Law and Lawyers, which is published by Carolina Academic Press. So welcome to the show, Jennifer and Mark. Hi, thanks for having us. Great. Well, so I was really excited and interested to read uh, parts of this book, which looks fascinating. And I look forward to looking at the whole book at some point. But for listeners who haven't seen it yet and who might not be familiar with your project, um, your book is aimed at students in what you describe as jurisprudence, jurismaster, Master of Legal Studies, et cetera, programs. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those programs are, uh, what their purpose is, and how they differ from traditional J, JD, and LLM programs. Sure. Uh, well, Brian, you know, lots of uh, law schools have moved into this area after typically j- doing nothing but training lawyers, and that could be either in the JD setting or in the LLM setting, and uh, the we're, we're really hoping to meet uh, to meet a need here with dealing with the issue that there's a lot of legal compliance uh, law affiliated work that people are doing in their professional lives that isn't necessarily being met by legal education that's training to become a lawyer. So these legal master's programs are really geared more toward professionals whose careers are adjacent to the law and are hoping to advance their understanding that. And maybe they do work with law and with lawyers, but they're not uh, they're not interested in representing clients or uh, handling courtroom matters. They're just involved in the day to day work of compliance. Mm. What's my understanding, these programs are a little unusual in the law school context or something new in a law school context. And I, I wonder, are, to the extent that law schools are starting to adopt these kind of programs, are there kind of commonalities across them in terms of what the programs look like and what the programs are actually teaching? Or is there some sort of variety or differences among different programs? Many of these programs are built around specializations. Uh, Maybe it's business law and compliance. Maybe it's intellectual property. uh, Maybe it's healthcare law. And so within that, uh, the goal is to to really meet the needs of the particular students in their professional setting. So, but to the extent there's a commonality, it's ultimately that the goal is not toward taking the bar exam or becoming a lawyer and representing clients, but it's about how can I do my job better and be more informed uh, in in connection with the law and legal issues that I have to deal with. Mm. So, I mean, how do you think these kinds of non-JD LLM law degrees can add value for the students who are 
you know, taking these programs. And and in addition, sort of what do those students need that's different from, from traditional JD and LLM students? Like what, what kind of roles do they actually fill and what kind of skills do they need to be learning in order to really kind of take away from these programs, the value that's going to be most useful to them? The skills are different in that they're not, uh, I guess, from a, from a pedagogical standpoint, they're not built around simulated law practice. Uh, so you might think of these programs as teaching how to be a more effective legal client or you know, legal uh, subject of a regulatory regime and work within that. So I think one of the most important changes uh, to to the way the material uh, is taught here, even if we're teaching legal analysis, it's from the perspective of not duplicating what the lawyer does, but finding ways in which the uh, student can interact with what the lawyer does. And again, back in uh, their own uh, professional uh, job environment. Uh, Jennifer has a, had a fantastic revelation about this that's, that's worked its way into the book of dealing, for example, with notice and comment rulemaking. Um, yeah, so I can talk about how I was asked to make a legal, essentially a legal writing class for our Juris Master program at Emory Law School. And um, specifically, I was designing it for online delivery and uh, needed to figure out, you know, what are the right assignments uh, that these students would enjoy doing, would learn from doing? Um, what's, what's the right activity for a legal writing communication and research class for someone who is working with lawyers but not performing the role of a lawyer? So um, I was really inspired by um, the work of Sarah Marath at Houston um, and some others who have talked about legal persuasion skills in the regulatory context, um, basically writing responses to or writing comments on proposed regulations. Um, and so that's the, that's the context that we teach for persuasive writing. Um, that's the context that we use in the book. And I think that's an example of um, a type of persuasion, actually, that uh, law students seeking a JD degree uh, many would be well served to to look at that as well. Mm. So, why did you think that the notice and comment responses were especially appropriate in in this context? Like, what kind of characteristic of them made it an especially useful tool? I liked it because it it involves some legal sources. For example, you know the the, the statute that um, the regulation is going to sort of implement. Uh, but it's also fundamentally a policy um, question. So like, what should this regulation be? What would be the result of it? And I think that that more flexible context for, for setting, you know, what the law is or for influencing what the law is, um, that's so interesting. And that's not something that, you know, that JDs necessarily um well, certainly JDs don't have a monopoly on, you know, participating in the democratic process. Um, and I think that type of persuasion brings together so many different types of evidence 
um, and so many different ways of thinking about what should the lobby, what what would this, what should this regulator know um, about the interests of this particular group. Um, it just makes a really great and rich um, assignment for persuasion. And something that's different about a rulemaking context is that's an area where the legal system actively interfaces with the everyday citizenry. It's not targeted toward lawyers in a way that, say, the courtroom uh, system is, which presumes that lawyers are the people involved. So in terms of actually bringing people to the legal system in a place where the legal system is already reaching out to them, notice and comment rulemaking is an excellent venue for doing that. Well, so maybe we could transition from there to the book itself. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what your primary goals in the book were. In other words, like kind of what kinds of skill sets were you most interested in focusing on and how did you approach sort of teaching those skill sets in the book? So my approach when I was first um, asked to design online delivery of um, a legal research and communication class in our JM program. My approach was first to look for a book to see if you know someone else had already created a template uh, for this for this goal. And what I found really was that there wasn't a lot of um, coverage. Basically, there are so many JD legal research and writing books. There are just so many great ones to choose from. Everyone has its strength. Everyone has its weakness. But, um, you know, they're all, for example, teaching, oh, how to write a, a memo where you anal- go research the law, analyze it, make a prediction to advise a client um, on making a legal decision. So so my first approach was, look, I, it, it, it's not necessarily right to just take the exact footprint of that and try to change it. Um, I wanted to think more broadly about sort of what um, – what's the right approach for this student group? So the first thing that I, I, I like, I like research, I like writing, I like persuasion, I like all of it, which is why I like my job. Um, but my first, so my first thing was to start with research and think, well, what are the legal research skills in terms of getting information and interpreting it that these students need? And for me personally, it became apparent that teaching research through Westlaw, Lexis, Bloomberg, basically sort of the fee-based research platforms that law students really learn how to use very well, hopefully. Um, But but focusing on that seemed like not the right approach. Um, I wanted to uh, have students work with freely available online legal information. Basically, you know, the sort of untrained instinct in trying to find out what a law is would be to, you know, just do a search engine like Google or whatever, like search for it. Well, how could that process be made way more, you know, educated, way more powerful, more efficient, more um, informed? How can uh, professionals get legal information and then interact with their lawyers um, and interact with legal questions, legal issues in a, um, in an efficient and powerful way. That's that's part of the answer to your question. And I think part of my experience, which was coming from, from a very different direction, 
uh, that, that Jennifer was. And so it was so fantastic when we when we met up and realized our shared interest here uh, was in developing the assignments for these kind of classes. Because if you're translating some of what's in a traditional, you know, first year legal research and writing JD course, every single aspect of that course is premised on really lawyering simulation. You know, let's practice being a lawyer. And it didn't take me long to realize that that's exactly the wrong way to approach these kind of students in in this sort of a setting, that what they need is something that simulates more closely the client experience in interacting with, with lawyers and with the legal system. Let me give one example of that. While uh, a JD course uh, may involve researching a project with the goal of ultimately uh, writing an analytical memorandum, maybe you know making an objective prediction on an outcome, what one of the things we've done in this book is created a problem where students walk through what the lawyer is doing, kind of pull back the curtain on the way legal analysis comes together. But then the end game project is we give the students the legal file. We give them, here's what's going on. Here's what the lawyer has come up with in terms of of an objective memorandum. And then the student assignment is to take that and additional information about the business issues that this particular client is facing and then work on an internal company recommendation. So essentially the focus is on, so this is what the lawyers said. What do I do now? And and that's really a unique quality of this book. I mean, if I may, I mean, it seems like at least one of the goals of these programs is to help students, uh, in a sense, become better clients who can use legal services more effectively and more efficiently. Is, is that a fair assessment? One, one uh, student I was talking with said that as a result of this course of study, he is better able to work with his lawyers. And when they say no, he can have more of a conversation with them about, well, what does that mean? You know, no, never, no, um, here's the risk. You know, it, it's, it's a richer conversation because both sides of the conversation are legally educated. Um, and, and like the, the title that we chose for the book, legally literate. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I wonder whether there isn't some value for traditional JD and LLM students and lawyers as well to thinking about, legal services from this perspective too? Because, I mean, it seems to me that oftentimes lawyers are not always very good at understanding their clients' needs either. One of the benefits of law schools having these sort of programs and and the, the way that they're proliferating is that actually creates a fair number of simulation opportunities that are a little bit different than what the schools have been doing traditionally. You know, think about it here. We've got a group that's working on becoming the client in the uh, master's space, be it master of jurisprudence, juris master, or MLS. But then we also have a group that's working on becoming the lawyers. I mean, that just opens up 
some incredible possibilities for legal education going forward, where we're not only training lawyers, but we're, you know, introducing them to their future clients and helping the clients to become more effective uh, when they reach their ultimate destination. Interestingly, a lot of these master's students, because they are coming from professional backgrounds and, and so have their day jobs already, as it were, they bring a lot of practical experience to the table that uh, benefits the future lawyers as well, maybe who are more traditional JD types. Yeah, the conversation in these classes is just fantastic um, because you have students who are in the medical field, in public health, in business, in policy work. Um, it's a really, really um, interesting and rich uh, dialogue, I guess, um, with all these different perspectives being represented. Um, and kind of just to kind of go back to one of your earlier questions about sort of a common common goal there. So, you know, one goal is to really appreciate the differences of their backgrounds and where they are going to use where they are using legal information, legal skills um, in, in their own work. Um, so part of the common goal is to actually preserve what's different um, about their all their different expertise. Um, but we also, you know, people make fun of legal writing for being, you know, legalese or 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 just bad. But in fact, I think you know the the ideal um, way of thinking about legal writing is that. We're delivering a lot of information in a compact package. It has to be very accurate. It has to be consistent. Legal writing, when it's good, um, is very powerful. And that is something that that our students in these JM programs can really benefit from, um, from practicing, from appreciating. And that way, you know, when you see, for example, contract language that appears, you know, someone else might say, oh, it's so complicated, I'll never understand it, or, or, oh, lawyers did that, you know, sort of a cynical view of lawyers. Well, someone who's actually really gotten into legal language and, and um, joined the challenge of like, well, how would you make it better? How, how could you make it simpler? Or what does it really mean? What's it doing? When you really grapple with those kind of questions, um, I think that you have so much of a better understanding for why things are the way they are and how they could be better. I mean, that, that idea also is, is important here, which is we talk about, you know, legal innovation and, and that type of thing. Well, legal innovation can come from needs to come from so many different aspects of um, society. And, you know, this group of folks is going to be in a great place to contribute to that conversation in really um, important ways. So in your book and earlier in this conversation, you used the term legal literacy as kind of a goal of these programs. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more specifically about what that means and sort of how one most effectively goes about teaching and evaluating legal legal literacy in a kind of pedagogical context. So um, when I started writing the book when I started sort of conceiving it, um, the question was like, what's the right framework for this? And I think legal literacy is a great framework because it is flexible enough to, it sort of touches on basic civic education, but it is 
more powerful than that. So um, in the first chapter, you know, we talk about um, James Boyd White was sort of one of the original scholars using this term. And he talks about um, participating basically in an increasingly legalistic and litigious culture, meaningful participation in this legalistic culture that we have. Um, and that was, I think, I don't know, 20 years ago, that was 30 years ago, that was a while ago. And it has really only increased uh, since then. So legal literacy is just as valuable, if not more valuable of a framework now than, than ever. Mm. Well, so, I mean, what exactly does that mean, like in a practical context? How does one go about teaching legal literacy? What are the most important tools that you think the students in these programs need to be coming away with? And, you know, you've talked about using examples. I wonder if you could, or like case studies, I wonder if you could give some particular examples of how that would work. I mean, I think literacy, as as we all know, is most associated with reading. And so reading statutes, reading regulations, reading contracts, those, I would say those skills of being very skillful at um, efficiently and effectively um, reading legal texts and using them in, you know, whatever business or, or organization you may be in, that's, that's really important. Um, and then we talk about, you know, writing. So in our book, we have a chapter on email. Um, we started it. We started writing it as just email itself, and then we got some feedback in the editorial process to maybe expand it out a little more to correspondence generally. So, um, you know, we we don't cover, let's say, privilege or like true legal doctrines about the correspondence, but we touch on them so that people can be even more ready to, you know, ask good questions and situate themselves. Um, effectively like an email is a writing just like any other letter just or a text is a writing you know that would be um that could have you could make a contract you could make uh, accept a contract through a text for example so we've got reading um we've got writing we've already talked about persuading in the notice and comment um context mark what else do you think you know, one, one thing we've uh, we focused on early on in the book as, as students are thinking through this is defining the practice of law and the unauthorized practice of law. That's sort of an issue that comes up. Uh, it really crosses all of these uh, these different formats. Uh, and, and it turns out sometimes there are some clear answers and sometimes there aren't. But, it, but a, a major framework for getting this across is sort of constantly communicating to the students, here are the things you can do, here are the things you can learn, you can apply uh, your legal literacy to bear in your in your professional walk. But then there are areas where this is when you need to start thinking about getting a lawyer involved. So uh, I, I think that's that's another feature that really transcends a lot of these areas that uh, Jennifer has, has spoken about whether it's uh, litigation, whether it's administrative law, whether it's uh, contract uh, uh, management, and and the like. Uh, we really have to kind of have a conscious understanding of the, this dividing line, even when it's fuzzy, between uh, practice of law and uh, unauthorized practice of law. 
Mm. Well, you know, it struck me reading your work and reflecting on these programs and the fact that they're being created, that there might be a real need for or might be real value in law students taking a similar kind of course in sort of better communicating to clients, um, like maybe like a almost like a corollary to legal literacy, like client literacy in a sense, because it, it seems as if there's maybe in some cases a communication disconnect. But I, I think there are many aspects of JD education that are doing a good job helping future lawyers communicate effectively with their clients. I mean, if you, you know, go into a, a clinical program and students get really um, intensive hands-on mentoring and training and coaching and feedback from their clinical education professors on, you know, how to communicate with your particular client. So um, that's not, it's hard to deliver that message um, in a, to, you know, to every student in a sort of a, required way but the jd legal education you know it's not like we're sitting around saying oh don't communicate with clients they have to figure it out on their own like people are being you know people are learning to uh to communicate with their non-lawyer clients um but this degree program that we are talking about sort of is just another way to make that um, communication more effective. Um, And also I think to help, you know, ultimately a client, they're the ones that make the decision. And so, you you know, they're the ones who have to live with the decision. So just being more educated generally about, you know, legal concepts, for example, you, you may have a more realistic view of what's possible, um, or you might have a more innovative view of what could be possible that, um, and, and a more power in sort of pushing back. That's kind of the example that I, that I gave earlier is, is putting, putting some pressure maybe on traditional ways of, of thinking about, um, the function of law. And ultimately these legal masters programs, they're really part of a larger trend in legal education about breaking down the silos, and maybe first and foremost, that includes the silo that lawyers have tended to place around themselves uh, as though interacting with the law is so specialized, is so something that the laity cannot understand that they should be uh, kept away from it, you know, almost as though it's some sort of uh, uh, dark art, and uh, you know we will leave, leave the legal wizards uh, to to deal with that. In fact, what's going to what's most effective in dealing with legal issues uh, in an era of increasing legal complexity? I mean, let's face it, things are not getting simpler over time. Is working as a team, and that's going to include bringing in informed, literate clients and giving them the tools to be able to work with lawyers who bring the special skills of JD legal education to bear. Well, so Jennifer, Mark, in closing, I I wonder if the two of you could 
maybe reflect briefly on what you think these programs and the approaches you're suggesting to maximize the effectiveness of these kinds of programs for the students who go through them says about the future of legal education and maybe the future of legal practice as well. I think the teamwork and collaboration theme that Mark just mentioned is a great closing thought. Um, the message that we're sending and the message that I'm seeing when, you know, when I work with these students is working with law, using law to advance an individual organization's goals or to um, achieve better social outcomes overall. Um, that's a group project. And by uh, participating in these types of um, studies, the group project becomes just stronger. And I think going forward, it's really important for legal education to embrace this concept that perhaps we've been thinking about what law schools do in too narrow of a fashion. It turns out we have a lot of expertise that the public at large is interested in. And it's not just, hey, go out and do an interview or, or appear in media. That's certainly good. But there are uh there are educational uh, moments and areas that we can bring to a broader public. And it so happens that the, the professional setting of law school has not traditionally uh, thought much about that or put, put any effort there. And I think it's a fantastic thing that law schools are moving in this direction because ultimately we want to have a more informed public, a more informed group of clients, and we want to have lawyers who can better serve those clients. This sort of a program, the Master of Jurisprudence, you know, JM, uh, MLS, all together with the JD are really advancing the public mission of law schools. And that and there really is uh, a need to serve the public. And it's just really exciting to be a part of that at this moment in history. Great. Well, Jennifer, Mark, Thanks so much for coming on the program. Um, I think these are really great and fascinating programs. And um, I, I look forward to looking at your book more closely. And I encourage other people in legal academia to do the same. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. Appreciate you having us on. Literary critic Charles Bernstein discusses the Yellow Pages by John Lovitz. I love to do uh, uh, readings from the book. One thing is just to read the, 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 the subheads, the stuff at the top. Excavating to executive, executive, executive exercising, exporters, fabric, fasteners, facts, facts, fence, 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 fence. Amazing, that repetition of fence. Get an idea. Open the yellow pages.